Happy Father's Day to all the dads. I did not know the kids were going to do that song with the slides and everything. That was really special. So uh, thanks to all the kids, and, and that was really meaningful. I think if you didn't get goosebumps with that, you know, go to the doctor after the service, get something checked out, because uh, that, that, was, that was meaningful. Uh, being that it's Father's Day, let me start by telling you a dad joke, okay? There was a wife who took her overworked husband to the family physician because he was worried about him, because she was worried about him. And after the examination, the physician took the wife aside and whispered, I don't like the way your husband looks. To which she replied, I don't either, but he's always been a good father to the children. <laughs> so I'm glad that Chelsea sticks with me, not necessarily for my good looks, but uh, I am glad that uh, for Father's Day. And Dawson gave me this pin last night because he wanted me to wear it today. And uh, it's, it, it's great to be Father's Day. Uh, We are going through the book of Acts together in our sermon series now, and so far, as we've traveled through the first three chapters of the book, everything seems to be positive. I mean, the Holy Spirit's been given, and the church is full of love and generosity, and uh, people are enjoying the favor of one another and the favor of, of everyone else. Everything seems to be coming up roses. But now in chapter 4... There is a definite change in the book. All of a sudden, everything is not coming up roses. Everything now seems to be coming up thorns. And there's persecution and difficulty, divisions, arguing within the church. In fact, there is only three chapters in the remaining part of the book that will not mention some sort of persecution. And so the persecution starts now this morning, uh, in the passage we'll look at this morning, in Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 4. And it's a very lengthy passage, 22 verses, uh, but I'm going to read the story in its entirety. Acts 4, 1 through 22. The words will be on the screen behind me as well. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in the name of Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name do you do this? Did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, 
Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and, uh, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Then they saw the courage, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since, they could not, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was, nothing, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. But what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's pray. Father God, now as we look at this passage, we ask that you would come and that you would teach us and that you would guard our hearts and our minds and direct us into your ways. God, I realize that anything that I would say, if it comes from my own mind or my own strength or wisdom, will will simply fall flat and be done with in 30 minutes or whatever from now. But God, if it comes from you, it has the power to change our hearts and our lives forever. And so we pray that you would come and minister to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last verse here, verse 22, says that the man who was healed was more than 40 years old. Do you know what you call someone who is more than 40 years old? You call that person over the hill. Okay? This man was, I mean, holy cow, over 40 years old. This guy is an old guy. He's washed up, broken down, finished, kaput, ancient, elderly. And I am so glad that I am not 40 years old until Friday of this week. I read this passage and I thought, holy, uh, 40 years old, I'm almost in that camp. I'm almost over the hill. And one of the things that one does, probably a very unhealthy practice, is you have the, uh, on major holidays like this, there is the temptation to examine your life and to think, am I where I should be? Should I, do I ha- what has happened into my life up to this point? Have I accomplished all that I would hope to have accomplished by 40 years old? And so we, tend, we take time to examine our career, our finances, our family, our possessions, and whatever else you want to put on that list. 
And I'll just say that the expectations game is a terrible game because it inevitably leads to dissatisfaction and frustration. It is out of that... uh, It is out of that frustration that people go out and buy things like motorcycles and red Corvettes. And I am far too cheap to make that kind of uh, purchase. So I'm going to do my best not to play any expectation games this week. But this morning I'm going to ask us uh, to wrestle with a different kind of expectation. I've entitled this sermon, uh, Expectation Games, What Do You Expect? And we're going to wrestle with this question as we look at Acts chapter 4. What do you expect to happen if you proclaim Jesus? What do you expect to happen in your life if you proclaim Jesus? When you look at what happens to Peter and John here, this is a a pretty uh, fascinating story. And we see uh, how they are put in jail and then questioned about their faith. And should we have the same kind of expectations the, t- the question for today's sermon is, what do you expect to happen if you proclaim Jesus? And I'm going to give us six expectations, three negative and three positive. So let's start with the negative first. The first expectation we ought to have is expect Christian beliefs to be seen as dangerous. Expect Christian beliefs to be seen as dangerous. In the beginning of this story, the Sadducees, it says, are greatly disturbed at the apostles' teaching. They see their teaching and they think, this is dangerous stuff. And by the end of the story, they will say, we don't want you to speak in Jesus' name ever again. Why is it? It is because it is a threat to them. It is a threat to, first of all, who they were, their positions of power. And it is a threat to what they believed and their relationship with God. So this is how the Sadducees looked at it. Let's start, first of all, with their threat to their position. The Sadducees were people of leadership. Among the Jewish people, they were in positions of leadership. But it's not because God's Word gave them that authority. Like, for example, the Levites had the, had the Old Testament Scriptures where, which instructed them to be the priests. But the Sadducees had their power because they bribed the ruling authorities. They were in cahoots with the Roman officials. So the Sadducees were this, this bunch of wealthy aristocrats who sucked up to the Romans with a policy of collaboration. And, it, and if what the apostles were saying was true, this was a threat to them. And secondly, they were threatened theologically. You see, theologically, they did not believe, uh, they were not looking for a Messiah because they believed that that promise had ended with the, the fall of the Jewish state in 70 AD. And they also did not believe in a resurrection. Jesus pointed that out when he was on earth. He, uh, he, uh, when he talked to the Sadducees, he pointed out they do not believe in a resurrection. So here is the apostles' message. That Jesus was the Messiah who had risen from the dead. And if that was true, that was a threat to them not only politically, but that was a threat to them theologically. Because it meant that they had uh, acted on the wrong side of history. That That these were the ones that had put Jesus to death. Blood was on their hands. And so Peter doesn't dance around the issue. Verse 10 he says, it is speaking directly to them. 
Think about the courage this takes. It is by the name of Jesus, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And so you can understand why the Sadducees were all up in arms with Peter and John proclaiming Jesus. The message that they proclaimed threatened them politically and theologically. They stood guilty before an almighty God. Now the message that we proclaim today, the gospel message, is no less dangerous in our world. When we talk about, peop- when we talk about Jesus, is it not true that oftentimes people get just as defensive? And maybe it is because it affects their politics. Maybe it is that what Jesus taught contradicts their beliefs and the values that they have. Or maybe it is because it affects their theology, so to speak. They realize that as soon as we bring up Jesus, that there is a sense of guilt, that no matter how nicely we say it, the fact that Jesus died on the cross means that all of us are sinners who need God's forgiveness. And so these things are not easy nor comfortable to talk about. And it is, I think, doubly difficult given the world that we live in. And when you think of some of the values just in our society today, values of of tolerance and religious pluralism and the loss of anything that might be called an absolute truth, and you think about that world in which we live in, and then read Acts 4.12. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that is a dangerous message to proclaim. That is a message that will get you in trouble at work, unless you have my job, uh, or it'll, it'll, get you in tr- it'll get you in trouble at a lot of family gatherings. It is a dangerous message. Peter gives two negatives, no one else, no other name, and it proclaims the positive uniqueness of the name of Jesus. His death and resurrection, his exaltation and authority constitute him as the one and only Savior. This kind of belief is seen as ignorant, intolerant, judgmental, and old-fashioned. And people will think and say, you can't really believe that, can you? There's no possible way that could be true. I'm going to show a clip here in a minute. uh, And uh, this is Oprah Winfrey when she had her daytime television show. I think this is about eight years old, but these views are, are a good representation of kind of how society looks at these issues today. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a human being and and many ways, no, but many paths to what you call God. And her path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it's, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, 
I there couldn't be possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Just possibly couldn't be that way. And that's the way most people, I think, look at this. In fact, I was uh, given a picture here, and I think this is pretty uh, accurate of, of one way that a lot of people look at this. There, let me have the picture of the mountain. Do we have that? No? Okay, uh, sorry. Uh, I, a lot of times, the way we think of it is a, a tall mountain. Is God is at the peak of the mountain. And there are all, kind, all different paths that get to the top of the mountain. And uh, this path might be um, humanism. This path might be Buddhism. This path might be Islam. This is Christianity and Hinduism and uh, you, uh, and you name it. And I'll admit, that is a very attractive view. In fact, I would like that view to be true. But the problem is, it is very hard to reconcile that. In fact, I think it is impossible to reconcile that with Acts 4.12. That there is only, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Buddha's name won't do it. Muhammad's name won't do it. It is only in the name of Jesus. Now, that is not a popular belief. In fact, that is seen as a very dangerous belief. But where we have to be as Christians is wrestling with the Scriptures. What is it that the Bible teaches? And at the heart of the Gospel is the idea that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that all, would, all who would believe in His name and in Him would be declared righteous before the Almighty God. See, that is the first negative expectation, that our Christian beliefs are seen as dangerous. The second flows from it, that we ought to expect hostility. Peter and John are thrown into prison for, pro, for proclaiming the message of Jesus. And uh, is it possible that we would face hostility if we were pro, to proclaim the name of Jesus as well? It is not only possible, it is inevitable. No one was upset with Peter and John because this guy that they had healed could now walk. Verse 9 uh, makes that very clear. They say, you know, the man is standing right there before them. Everyone recognizes that they have done a good deal. And no one will stand in our way as Christians if we stick to the good deeds. If we stick to the ideas of helping the poor and volunteering at the senior center and tutoring underprivileged kids and raising money for wells in Africa. And we ought to be doing all of those things. But all of those things, ultimately our hope is that it leads to the opportunity for us to proclaim Jesus with our mouths. But as soon as the name of Jesus is brought up, oftentimes the mood in the room shifts. Jesus, uh, if we boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, we ought to expect hostility. Jesus predicted it. 
Verse, uh, John 15, 20. No, this is Jesus said, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But Jesus told us not to shy away from it. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You know, I think sometimes we get very timid. And I believe that there is a place to be strategic and to make sure that, that over time that our voice can be heard with strength and truth. But we ought not to shy away from the fact that we may face hostility if we proclaim the name of Jesus. Oftentimes when we think of persecution, our minds go to far-off countries. A couple weeks ago, the kings were here who are missionaries in Turkey, and they asked us to pray for a pastor they know there who has been in prison for his faith. And I think of Winnie who shared her testimony a couple weeks ago and about how she was fearful going back to China that she could face persecution. And this past week, I heard a story on the radio of a young man who was uh, who, growing up in North Korea, took a field trip to see a woman who was executed because, and this is a, as a child, to see a woman executed because of her faith. And she was shot nine times. And this, this story that I heard was not on the Christian radio. I heard this story on NPR. I mean, this is, this is all over the place, and we ought to be praying for those who suffer severe persecution all around the world. And we pray for the, uh, our, the persecuted church, but we also pray for ourselves because we need God's strength to be bold in our faith. And we say it with loving kindness, and we don't say it on some internet blog or something, okay? That's an easy way to be bold. But we, uh, but we, but we say it as we have opportunity. And so we, we may not face physical violence in America for our faith, but it still takes courage to speak up for Jesus. Amen? And, Jesus, and Peter gives us our marching orders. Verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay, so those are the first two negative expectations. Now let me move on to the third. The third negative expectation is that if we speak out boldly, some will reject the gospel. That is inevitable. Paul uh, quotes Psalm 118 to make this point. He says, Psalm 118, The stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, the analogy here is a mason in the ancient world, would gather all of his stones, and then he would search carefully which fo- for which stone was the strongest and best stone that he would set in its place, and that is the cornerstone. And the rest of the building would be organized all around the cornerstone. And each stone, once that most important stone was in place, each stone would be determined if it can be used and would be placed just strategically, just in the place the mason wanted it, and the building would be strong and could last for a long time. And those stones that weren't able to be used would be thrown off to the trash heap off to the side. And Peter, as he quotes this verse, he looks them straight in the face and he says, you guys have chosen the wrong cornerstone. 
In fact, Jesus, who ought to be the cornerstone, you've rejected altogether. And the analogy applies to us as well. We are constantly taking in information and things in our lives all the time. And we uh, subconsciously determine if it is something we want to apply to our lives or not. And so we, choose, we hear a commercial and we think, now does that line up with my values and what I would like? And this is all subconscious, but we make a determination if we're going to throw that off to the side or if we're going to go and purchase that product and put it into our lives. You hear a teaching and you think, is this, is, is this the values that I support and believe? And we put it into our lives. You hear this sermon and you're going to determine, is there truth here that ought to uh, affect my life and change my life? Or will I just toss it to the side? And so many people, they look at all of these things around us in our world and they choose a cornerstone outside of the cornerstone of Jesus. And many people have chosen that the center part of their life will be their career. It will be their finances or their money or their possessions. It will be their family or fun or entertainment. And they build their whole lives around it. And we look at that and we think that is not the best way to live, uh, to live your life. And we, look, and we, if we are Christians, have said Jesus is the way. All of these other stones ultimately will crumble and fail, but we will build our lives upon Jesus, and then everything else in our lives has to line up according to Him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Many people will look at our lives and say, to build your life around Jesus, that is foolishness. That is ridiculousness. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus, at the center of our lives, has given us the promise of eternal life. He has saved us from our sins. His power has filled us with joy and peace and give us, given us victory over sin and strengthened us to love with power that does not come from ourselves. And so we build our lives around Jesus Christ. But that is the most important thing in our lives. And if Jesus is this great, as we say he is, then it is a message that we should not keep to ourselves. We proclaim Jesus. Those are the three negative expectations. One, that a Christian beliefs will be seen as dangerous. Two, that we can expect to face hostility. And three, that... Uh, some will reject the gospel. Now, the first positive expectation is the exact opposite of the last negative, that we can expect people to believe in Jesus. We can expect to see many believe in Jesus. That's what we see here in this passage, verse 4. And many who heard the message believe, and the numbers grew. The m numbers grew tremendously. And we ought to have that same kind of expectation. Do we expect to see the people in our lives become saved. Oftentimes, we don't have that expectation. We've just kind of resigned to the fact that no, they are not believers and it is what it is. But if Jesus is as great as, he, as we claim him to be, in this place at least, we ought to proclaim him to be that great outside of this place. If you've been with our church uh, for any time now, uh, you remember in the last couple months, 
This is a story I've told before. I tell it again because it impressed me so much. Winnie was coming to our church. She was, uh, came here for um, uh, an educational assignment. She's a professor in China, and she wanted to have the experience of going to an American church. And so she came here and found it to be a loving place. And uh, she would ask me all kinds of questions about the Christian faith, but it was clear that she was far from becoming a Christian. And I will have to admit that it was not me who was as uh, consistent in witnessing to her as, as I should have been. It was Evelyn Yee who consistently and boldly told Winnie that she needed to believe in Jesus and ask him to come into her heart. And Winnie said that she was an agnostic. She later revealed that she was really an atheist, but Evelyn didn't give up. She continued to share until one day, unexpectedly, unexpectedly even to Winnie herself, she did place her faith in Jesus, and she became a Christian. And I tell that story because I hope it encourages us to realize that we ought to expect people to come to faith. Statistics show that a person must hear the gospel in one way or another. Does anyone want to take a guess how many times? Throw out a number. It's just a random number. 12, 3, 60. Oh, wow. Dawson's guessing high. Uh, the, what I have heard is seven times is the average. Some it's obviously more. Some it's less. Some may even receive on the first time they hear it. But if we are to share our, uh, our faith, that means on average... One out of seven times. But the reality is, if we don't ever share, it will be zero for zero. And a church that downplays the uniqueness of Christianity so that it can be well-respected in society and avoid persecution loses its power and vitality. I believe that with all my heart. And these churches will inevitably stop growing and will cease to be standard bearers for the kingdom of God. West Covina Christian Church cannot be that kind of church. Our mission statement has been for the longest time, we open our doors wide so that many will enter through the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is life with Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And as long as our doors are open, we will proclaim the message of Jesus. If we don't do that, we might as well close the doors because we have lost our mission statement. We've lost our reason to exist. And so that is the first positive expectation, that many will come to know Jesus Christ. The second is to expect the Spirit's, po- uh, to expect the Spirit's power and help. I think that's crucial because a lot of times the reason we don't share is because we feel inadequate in some way or another. We feel like maybe I don't have all the answers or maybe uh, the person will reject me because, I'm not, because I, I don't live a good enough life or whatever. And this is an expectation that gives us hope. Because it is not ultimately up to us in what we say. It is the Holy Spirit in us. It is His power and His help. When Jesus uh, was still on the earth, He said, When you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what you should say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit in you. And that is literally what we see happen in this passage. Peter and John are arrested, and it says here in verse 8, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, God helped Peter have the words. Now I realize that is Peter and John. 
And I realize that they are arrested and they are speaking at, at a trial. But can the same be expected for us as well? I think we can. It is God's promise that God will give us power and help when we proclaim the name of Jesus. The key to an effective witness is not how much training we have or how much knowledge or information we have obtained. The most important thing is, are we trusting in the Holy Spirit that lives in you as a follower of Jesus? When Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin here, The politicians and the theologians were amazed at their answers, especially when they considered these guys' background. Verse 13, and then I'm going to camp out on this verse for the rest of our time together uh, today, the last uh, few minutes we have. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't the people's, it wasn't these guys' training that was so fantastic or the education they had. In fact, the word that's translated common here is the Greek word idiotes, from which we get our, our English word idiot. So in other words, they say these guys are a bunch of idiots. And for some strange reason, that gives me some sort of comfort. Because I guess at least I don't consider myself an idiot. I'm not the most intelligent person, but I don't consider myself an idiot. But no matter what kind of education we have received, the point is what is transformational is if we have spent time with Jesus. That is what is most important. I've got a lot of theological education. I've got a few diplomas hanging in my office, but I recognize that none of that matters if I have not regularly and consistently spent time with Jesus. That's where the Holy Spirit's power and help comes from. And so that leads us to our last point. The last positive expectation is this, to expect to be transformed in Jesus' presence. You see, when we spend time with Jesus, we will be changed. We will be changed from the inside out and changed for the good. In fact, when we spend time with Jesus is when we begin to move into what Jesus called the abundant life or life to the full. I took a hike this week, and I was walking up the mountains, and it was, it was in the afternoon, and it was, it was really hot, and I, and I was almost to the top, but, uh, boy, I was dying. I was so out of breath, and, and the gravel was all loose because uh, it's been so dry. And so my feet are on the path the whole time, and as soon as I get up to the top, I lift up my head, I take it off the path, and boom, the view, like, hit me right in the face. It was just a spectacular view. The, cl- the cl- sky was clear, and I could see for miles, and it was so gorgeous. It was almost a spiritual moment. And in that moment, this thought came to my mind. I'm, I'm telling you, this, this came to my mind in that, in that moment. I thought, if as long as I keep my eyes on the path, I will miss the view all around me. And as long as we keep our eyes on the little things in our lives, we can miss the view of what it really is like to live with Jesus. You see, let's take a minute and think about this. 
We're gonna, I'm going to name some, some things that we know about Jesus that we've said, some of us have said since we were four years old. But this is true, that when, that, that Jesus is awesome and that he really loves you, that he is the smartest and wisest being in the universe and he receives you and invites you in. That he is joyful and merciful and compassionate and loving and he wants to live life with you. Now that is quite a view to get a picture of living with Jesus in that way. And that is a view that can transform our lives. There's a book that I love to just go back and read bits and pieces here and there that talks all about this vision of being transformed in Jesus' presence. The book is uh, titled The Practice of the Presence of God, written by a guy that we simply know as Brother Lawrence. And to close the book, he offers, the, he offers four blessings of living in the presence of God. And I'm going to summarize these. One, he says, being in God's presence strengthens us to have power to resist sin and temptation. You see, when we are in God's presence, our spiritual muscles get stronger. And all of us wrestle with sin and temptation. And the way that we can grow in being able to resist that temptation is by spending time with Jesus. By being with Jesus, we can be transformed to resist temptation and to find the deep blessings of God. The second, Brother Lawrence says, is being in God's presence helps us to see God as infinitely beautiful. And Brother Lawrence talks about being more than beautiful than anything on earth and more beautiful than the angels themselves. It is when we spend time in God's presence, in prayer with Him and in His Word and in fellowship with other believers, when we even just go about our daily lives with a mind that He is with us, is when we, when we begin to get a glimpse more and more of God's beauty And we are transformed so that we never desire to leave his presence. The third thing is that being in God's presence causes us to have a passion for God and to rejoice at what the book says, being set apart from the world. And when we have spent time, significant time with God, we have a passion for him, a passion that transforms our hearts so that we have a fire within us. And then being in God's presence causes us to become like him in our attitudes in our actions our thoughts and our words our whole lives become and i'll quote here continual acts of love praise confidence thanksgiving offering and petition it is by being in god's presence that we are transformed to become like jesus this is, nothing better could happen in our lives. It will transform us from the inside out. And we think, today's Father's Day, right? I think about how being in God's presence transforms even the way that I hope to be as a dad. It affects the way that I put my kids down for bed at night. It affects the way I punish them. It affects the way that we interact and play together. It affects the way I treat my wife, their mom. And uh, it affects everything. It affects us from our, 
from the inside out. It affects the way I pray for them because my deepest desire for them is that they will grow up to know, not only to know, but to love Jesus with all their heart. And I pray that for them, with them, every night. And over time, this idea of spending time with God does not feel obligatory. It does not feel like a duty because there is such joy in the presence of God. D.L. Moody was a famous evangelist from about 100 years ago, I suppose. And uh, as a young man, he had a friend by the name of Henry Varley. And Varley said to him one day, Moody, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody couldn't shake the statement. He'd think about it for days. He'd lay awake in bed at night and think about what Varley had said to him. And he finally realized a man, Varley meant any man. Varley didn't say an educated or brilliant or anything else. Just a man. Well, by the Holy Spirit in me, I'll be that man, determined Moody. And God is still looking for men and for women who are fully committed to him. It doesn't take a person with tremendous intellectual abilities or a perfect past. All it takes is spending time with Jesus. And so I would ask you this morning, would you be that woman? Would you be that man? To be expect, uh, expect to be transformed when we are in God's presence. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you today on Father's Day. We thank you for the dads that we are uh, that we remember today, dads especially, that have said, I want to be a godly father. But God, all of us right now in this room, we just come before you and we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you that it is through the name of Jesus that we can be declared righteous in your sight. And we pray that we would not be timid, but that we would be bold and that we would have courage. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us power and strength to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus. It is the most wonderful name in the entire universe. And so God, help us to, be, to long to be in your presence. Draw us close to yourself. We realize that even that is a gift from you. And so, so draw us close to yourself and may we be transformed as we live our lives in love and devotion to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.